So far in our study of biblical interpretation, we've considered two, uh, two overarching principles. Sola Scriptura, the idea that Scripture alone reveals to us what we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it. And also this idea of the rationality of Scripture, because God is a rational God, He's revealed Himself in a rational way. And because His Word is then a rational Word, it can only be rightly interpreted when it is approached rationally. And we considered last week some of the irrational approaches to the Word of God that people use, such as using it as a, as a lot, as a kind of tool of divination, or applying verses grossly out of context or meaning based on mystical impressions, uh, like the woman who trusted God for her dental work because in Psalm 81.10 it says, I am the Lord thy God which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Open thy mouth wide and I will fill it. <laughs> or using the Bible as a grid for hidden messages, which you can find using these techniques of Jewish Kabbalah. And, and now I understand um, from subsequent conversation after last week's sermon that this has advanced to the point where, where the, there are some, software by the way is now available if you'd like to do this at home in your own uh, too much spare time. Uh, there are some who consider this because the Bible talks about the book of life in which the, all the names of the elect are written that this actually is the book of life. So you use your little software to search uh, for whether your name's in there or not. And I guess you hope that it you know, shows up. So we have these so far two overarching principles. Sola Scriptura and the idea of the rationality of Scripture. I want to talk this week about the work of the Holy Spirit. What is the work of the Holy Spirit? Well, fundamentally, the work of the Holy Spirit is to apply the benefits of Christ's redemption. In other words, Christ, through His work, life and death and resurrection, has purchased for His people certain benefits, and it is the work of the Spirit to apply these in time. So, uh, most obviously, we can think of regeneration being one of the uh, one of the works of the Holy Spirit. The wind blows where it wills, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Also, sanctification. Second uh, Thessalonians 2.13, 1 Peter 1.2, speaking of the sanctification of the Spirit. Also, we know that the Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered from Romans 8.26. The Spirit is involved in the work of assurance. Uh, the Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Uh, the, through, uh, also in the miraculous confirmation of the preaching of the gospel, the Spirit was involved. Through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, Paul says, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ, Romans 15:19, in the gifting of the church. 1 Corinthians 12.4, now there are diverse gifts, but the same Spirit. All of these things are the work of the Spirit purchased, uh, these benefits purchased by Christ's redemption. But the work of the Spirit we want to talk about this evening in particular is His work in revelation. The work of the Spirit in revelation. Now what does the Spirit reveal? Well, when the Spirit of truth is come, He will guide you into all truth. John 16, 13. The Spirit of God reveals the truth. There's nothing amazing particularly about that. I'm sure we all believe that. The Spirit is God. God cannot lie. So whatever the Spirit reveals is the truth. The Spirit of God reveals the truth. Now, we've asked this question before. When, when the Bible says that He reveals all truth, does that mean He reveals every truth that could be known? Of course, the answer is no. We considered that in one of our first messages. The Spirit reveals the truth, if you will, of who God is and what duty God is required of man. 
2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, a verse we've talked about a number of times now. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the Spirit of God reveals everything that is necessary for us to know and do. But we can actually draw this circle a little narrower. The Spirit of God reveals something in particular. And that is, the Spirit of God is the revealer of Christ. John 15:26. When the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceeds from the Father, he shall testify of me. The Spirit is the revealer of Christ. The Spirit was the revealer of Christ in the Old Testament. In a, in a verse uh, you heard this morning, 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11. Peter speaks of the salvation which the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them, did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Peter is telling us that the, the work of the Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit of God in the Old Testament Scriptures was to reveal the sufferings of Christ and the glory which would follow. And in the New Testament, as Christ continues his discourse, John 15, 16, 17, in chapter 16 he says, verses 12 through 15, he says, I have yet many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it to you. So here at this time, when the disciples uh, were, were contemplating this teaching of Christ, that he was imminently to depart from them through his death, wondering what they would do, perhaps, without the presence of Christ among them, to teach them by His Word, His own Word, as He had for so many years. Christ tells them that He will not leave them alone, but He will send the Spirit of God who will guide them into all truth. And in fact, the entire canonical New Testament, the inspired New Testament, is... Nothing if it is not the fulfillment of this passage. For there were many things which at that point they could not bear. They could not understand because their minds were yet dark. And so uh, after the death and, and, and uh, ascension, resurrection and ascension of Christ with the descent of the Spirit in Pentecost, the Spirit guides the church into all truth through the apostles and prophets of the New Testament. So he is the revealer of truth, this Holy Spirit, this third person of the Trinity. He is the revealer of the truth which is necessary for us to know, which in particular is focused upon the person and work of Jesus Christ and the implications of those things which Christ has done and said. And so we come to our last question about the work of the Holy Spirit, which is where, or perhaps how, does he reveal these truths? And the answer is, in or by his word. Ephesians 6.17 commands us to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. In the Old Testament, the Spirit revealed Himself 
by his words. Second Peter one twenty one for the prophecy did not come in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 7, Stephen preaching just prior to being stoned to death by the Jews makes this statement. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. How did they resist the Holy Spirit, these Jews of Stephen's day and of the centuries before? He goes on. For which of the prophets have your fathers not persecuted. So, to, to ignore, to despise the, the word of God spoken by his prophets is resisting the Holy Spirit, according to Stephen. In the Old Testament, the Spirit revealed himself by his word. And in the New Testament, it is no different. 1 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13. Paul says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us by God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. So how did the Spirit reveal Himself to Paul? They spoke the words which the Holy Spirit teaches. Ephesians 3, verse 3, and what follows, Paul speaks of how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. The Spirit is revealing to these apostles and prophets doctrine, truths, through His Word, just as He had done in ancient times through the prophets of the Most High God, revealing to them the words of God. So, in the New Testament times, He is revealing Himself, He is revealing the truth, He is revealing Christ Jesus through the words which He teaches them and which they then preach. So this Spirit of God has revealed the truth in His Word, what we call verbal revelation. And this Word, this revelation of the Spirit, has been collected and preserved from, for our benefit from the writing down of Genesis 4,000 years ago to the writing down of the revelation of John 1900 uh, or... 1900 years ago, approximately. So we have this verbal revelation of the Spirit. Now, this brings us to our main topic today, which is a great challenge that exists in the Christian world to Sola Scriptura, to the rationality of God's revelation into this entire concept of verbal revelation. And that is what we call mysticism. Mysticism. What is mysticism? Well, I'll give you a dictionary definition. A mystic, according to my big fat dictionary, a mystic is a person who attains or reaches insight into mysteries which transcend ordinary human knowledge, especially one who does this by immediate spiritual intuition and sometimes in a state of spiritual ecstasy. Now, now that you've all gone to sleep, after we got to the words immediate spiritual intuition, let's talk about what that means. What it means, a mystic in the dictionary definition, generally speaking, is not a person who has achieved this knowledge, who has reached these understandings through word. 
Rather, they have achieved it through what they're calling immediate spiritual intuition, which is to say, uh, a, a direct spiritual experience by which they now suddenly know something. They, there's nothing in between them and whatever they're getting this revelation from. It's, it's an inside experience that they get. Uh, the pagan religions of the New Testament day were, were rife with this kind of thing, especially, especially in Asia Minor, where there was a lot of uh, weird Greek religions that had mixed with some Eastern-influenced religions and so you had like the Sibylline oracles and the, the the Dionysian prophetesses and people like this and what they would basically do is they would the, these these women they were always women for some strange reason these women would would go into a kind of trance if you will and they'd have and the, which is what the dictionary is calling spiritual ecstasy they go into what we would call a trance and they and they would and they would experience the divine. And sometimes they would have verbal revelation, but it was this whole concept of this immediate knowledge. Now, what does it have to do with with the Bible? I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm not going to stand up here and attack the Sibylline Oracle because I don't think anyone here has probably gone to her recently. When applied to Christianity and our understanding of truth, mysticism. I'm going to define as the undermining of the sufficiency and authority of God's word through emotional or subjective spiritual experiences. The undermining of the sufficiency and authority of God's word through emotional and subjective spiritual experiences. Now this is, uh, this manifests itself in a number of ways. The most dramatic way that it has manifested itself in history is when people, under religious pretenses, outright abandon the Word of God. Just throw it away. Don't need that anymore. Whether we're talking about the Anabaptists of the 16th century, uh, Reformation period on the continent, in Germany and Switzerland, uh, they said that they were, go they, they were exalting what they called the living spirit over the dead letter. And they said that the reformers, they mocked them, and they said Calvin and Luther were dead letter preachers. That's what, that's what I believe Meadow Simons called them, in fact, dead letter preachers. And so the Anabaptists exalted the living spirit over the dead letter. Well, let's move forward a hundred years to the Puritan times. 17th century England. We have the Quakers, founded by a fellow named George Fox. And George Fox, one day, uh, it's kind of a Buddha-like story, actually. He was, I think he was basically sitting under a tree and got the inner light. I mean, there it was. He just had it. Suddenly it was there. And he didn't need the Bible anymore because he had the inner light, which was the new revelation that supersedes and replaces the word. The word is passé. We don't need the word anymore. We've got something better. We've got the inner light. And he founded the Quakers, and they were a whole mess of trouble in that uh, age and time. And in fact, they still exist today. And if you go to a proper Quaker meeting, what people do is they sit around, much like we were for our song service, sitting around in, in a little square, and you sit there. And you sit there. And then eventually somebody gets the inner light and starts talking and, you know, teaching and things like that, and then somebody else might get it. But you don't need this, because obviously, obviously if we're getting direct communication from God, I mean, well, who needs this? This is boring and, and old now. We can move forward another hundred years to the Pietists. There's a group called the Pietists in 18th century Lutheran Germany. And they stressed uh, very much... The, the classical definition of a mystic, they stress the immediate experience of God through meditation, through prayer. You would have kind of an encounter, a mystical encounter with God. And then you would be sanctified through that and you would, have, you would know and understand. 
And again, putting aside the word. And this sort of thing just has continued. I'm sure we could find it in every century. Whether it's Bernard of Clairvaux or the Montanists very early in the, in the 200s. Bernard of Clairvaux in the Middle Ages. Uh, all the way up through today. Through the modern charismatic movement. Now, what is common behind all of these is that they are frequently, not always, but frequently a reaction to what we might call dead orthodoxy, or in some cases just dead, without the orthodoxy. You're in a, in a religious environment, for example, where you have forms, you have religious forms, without spiritual life. Well, eventually there will be a reaction, which is that people will... will uh, claim to have achieved spiritual life without religious forms. In fact, in the midst of religious anarchy, they will hold up. Or, if you're in an environment where you have a concentration on doctrine without spiritual life, where spirit, true spiritual life is neglected, you will eventually have a reaction and people will begin to, to, to turn against doctrine. And, and they will claim to have achieved spiritual life in the midst of doctrinal anarchy. And in a place where you have an emphasis on the Word, but where there is no spiritual life to back it up, eventually you will have people who will claim to have achieved their spiritual experience apart from the Word, even against the Word. And the argument in almost every one of these cases which oddly enough is drawn from the Bible, which seems contradictory to me, but is the exaltation of the Spirit over the letter. And they will almost always turn to this passage, 2 Corinthians 3, 5 and 6. Our sufficiency is from God, who also has made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Especially the Anabaptists were big on this particular verse, and, and it's been common throughout these movements. This emphasis on the idea of the Bible as a dead letter, whereas what we're after is this living spirit with immediate connection to God. Well, the first thing we have to understand, because this is very important, after all, we don't want to be dead letter people. We can be living spirit people. The first thing we have to understand is what in the world is Paul talking about? And it is not that. Let me read a little broader context. He says, Our sufficiency is of God, who has made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now listen to this. But if the ministration of death, written and engraved in stones, was glorious so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, and this glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be even more glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation is glory, much more does the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. And all of this actually is in a context in the book of Corinthians of Paul making a proof of his ministry. Because that is the whole purpose of 2 Corinthians. Paul defend his ministry, of his gospel ministry. He's talking about uh, this, this contrast. But what is the contrast between here? Well, now that we read a little further, the contrast is between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The letter refers to the Mosaic Law that which was written and engraved in stones and received by Moses. And what was the nature of the Mosaic Law? It was that it came as a command without providing the ability to fulfill. So it was a dead letter. It was incapable of producing moral change. You had a command, but it, it didn't give you anything to do it. It's like if I tell you to go rebuild an engine, but I don't give you tools or instructions or, or, or training or anything. We know that the law 
was incapable of producing moral change. Romans 8.3, what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. So the law, the letter is the law. The old covenant. And the letter kills. How does it kill? Well, look, to minister a command to a person without giving them the, the power to fulfill the command is to minister death. Because a command brings with it a penalty, a condemnation, if you don't follow the command. The law works wrath, Romans 4.15. So the letter kills, because it gave them this command, which if they didn't obey it, the penalty was death. But it didn't give them the power. There was nothing in it, nothing in it that could give them the power to obey, to keep this command that was necessary for life. And, more, and it gets worse. Because according to the New Testament, not only did it not bring life, it actually made matters worse. The law itself promoted sin, which then brought death. Romans 5.20, the law entered that the offense might abound. How's that? Well, Romans 7.5, when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins which were by the law, the motions of sins which were caused by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. Paul says, what good did the law do me when I was a lost man? Here's what it did. The motion of sin, it caused a motion of sin in me which brought forth the fruit of sin that I committed which brought condemnation and all that was because of the law. Talk about administration of death. The letter kills. But what happens? What is Paul preaching? Is he preaching the law? No. He's preaching something different. The gospel, the new covenant, the spirit. How's that? Well, to minister the gospel is to minister that word by which men are born again. It carries both the command and the power. Because, 1 Peter 1.23, we are born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, that is, by the Word of God. Paul, ministering the Gospel, ministers the Spirit. For the Spirit is the one by whom we are born again. It is through the Word, 1 Peter, that we are born again. So when Paul preaches the Gospel, he is a minister of the Spirit to the elect. And He brings life, not death. Death comes by the law, but life comes by the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So the contrast was never, never between the Word and the Spirit. The contrast was between the Old and New Covenant system, the Word that brought death and only could bring death. And the Word that gave life and was the only Word that could give life. The Law and the Gospel. So, so we then, uh, we must not obviously abandon the Word under the pretense that it is a dead letter. For in fact, it is the living Spirit which brings life. And it is the preaching of this Word by which men are born again. Alright, what's, what's another manifestation of mysticism? I like this one. I call it Walt Disney Theology. Let your conscience be your guide. Isn't that Jiminy Cricket or someone like that? Yeah, it's what I was afraid of. Letting your conscience be your guide summarizes perfectly humanistic... Uh, theories of morality. The conscience, of course, exists. Uh, and it is defined, generally speaking, defined as, as kind of the inward moral compass that men have that alternately condemn or approve of their actions. And in, in humanism, it is a goal to sensitize the conscious through stories or or different things, book of virtues, because when you have a sensitized conscience, then you will be directed 
towards the right and steered away from the wrong. That's the theory of it. Let your conscience be your guide. Shouldn't we do that? Isn't that a good thing we should all do? Well, of course, amongst unbelievers, the Bible simply says it doesn't work. Here's why. There are only two categories for you to fall into regarding your conscience when you're an unbeliever. Category one. You, become, you let your conscience be your guide. You pay attention to it. And you become a self-justifying moralist. Oh, you honor your conscience. And you notice that other people don't. And so you consider yourself to be very righteous on account of that and much better than these other people. Because after all, I, I, am, I am not a sinner like that other man. Well, I, I pray three times a day and I tithe and, and all of these other things. Oh, uh, I'm not a robber or a murderer or, or, or a, a thief or a pirate or a scoundrel. I'm a good person because I follow my conscience. That's category one. Category two is to ignore those who tell you to pay attention to your conscience and to immerse yourself in pleasure and lust and so sear your conscience that you don't even know you have one anymore and you become an immoral libertine. Now, brethren, that encapsulates the entire world of lost people. There's one of two categories. Either you are a self-justifying moralist or you are an immoral libertine. But the root problem is actually a little bit deeper than that. The root problem with our Jiminy Cricket theology. And that is this. Conscience, in and of itself, is completely unable to accurately determine right and wrong. It, certain broad things, yes, are, are, are hardwired into mankind. Which is why it speaks in Romans of those who have not the law, have the work of the law written in their hearts as they alternately excuse and accuse one another. But need I remind you that Paul is talking about Rome, which is a society in which men practice the most hideous depravities imaginable without any conscience of them whatsoever. So it wasn't working that well. See, in point of fact, a man can do wrong, overwhelming wrong, and be absolutely certain that what he's doing is right and have not the least guilt about it whatsoever. Or, a man can do the right thing and yet be tormented tormented in his conscience that perhaps, possibly, he is doing something wrong. Conscience has no ability by itself to inform us accurately of what is right and what is wrong. Conscience itself must first be informed by truth. Or else, it is completely irrelevant and even misleading. Now, if conscience has to be informed by truth, that means that conscience is entirely dependent upon the revelation of truth, which is the Word of God. Conscience, apart from truth, is about as useful as a measuring cup with all the lines erased, or, or a ruler with nothing on it. And you don't even know how long it was to begin with. It, it's, what are you going to do with it? You're going to build a house with your ruler that has no measurements? You're going to make a recipe with your measuring cup that you don't know how much it is or how much any part of it is in there? You're going to have a funny-looking building and a nasty-tasting uh, recipe. It's useless. And it gets worse than that. Because conscience not only has to be informed by, by, by truth for it to have any validity at all, but conscience is very susceptible to being misled and affected by many other things. Um, tradition, culture, the way you were brought up. This is, now this is like, back to our ruler, our measuring cup. When you have this problem, it's like you have a ruler, but the lines are in the wrong places. 
Or you have a measuring cup and it has lines on it, but it has the wrong amounts listed for each line. You see, it's still basically useless. Except that because it has some lines on it, you might think that it's useful. And you might try to use it. And you might be convinced that it's the right thing. And then you're going to scratch your head and wonder why your building leans like this and your recipe still tastes nasty. When you... Conscience is like a very sensitive piece of measuring equipment that has to be calibrated. It has to be adjusted just right. Or else it will give you a false reading. And the false reading may not just be you know, erroneous. It can actually be dangerous when you apply it to ideas of truth and duty. Now, a conscience is a good thing to have. I mean, if you don't have one, you have some problems. And generally speaking, the Bible even teaches us that we should not go against our consciences exactly, because even, even when your conscience is wrong, there are cases, uh, the whole issue of the weaker brother that the uh, uh, pastor talked about last week, the brother has a, an erroneously informed conscience, but... If he goes against it, he'll get himself trapped in a cycle of guilt from which he'll be virtually unable to escape. But Paul's solution is not to just leave it there, but it's to calibrate that conscience accurately with the Word of God and then to remember that there are hundreds of things that affect this inside feeling that we get, that we can be completely wrong about. The Word calibrates our conscience rather than what is more commonly done is using our conscience to calibrate the Word. You feel that something must be wrong. So you and, and you want to you, know, you feel like you ought to have something in the Bible so you go to the Bible and you draw it out. You put it there and then get it out with bad interpretation instead of recognizing that right and wrong can only be determined out of the Word of God. Here we are, back to sola scriptura. So letting your conscience be your guide is really nothing more than mysticism. Mysticism. Inward feelings superimposed over the Word of God to make it fit whatever you already feel about what should be right and what should be wrong. It's number two for today. Third example, important example of mysticism as an attack, as an outright assault on the verbal revelation of the Spirit and the sufficiency of Scripture, sola scriptura, is this one. When we have what I'm calling the subjective determination of truth, which goes by these words, I don't have peace about it. I just don't have peace about it. Now, what is always astonishing about this is probably 99.9% .9 of the time, you will hear these words in response to something that is overwhelmingly clear from the Scriptures that you should either believe or do. And you will hear, the Lord hasn't given me peace about that. In fact, there was a person with whom this congregation has had some degree of contact in ministry who in a nutshell stated that the way that he determined truth, well, if you told him something, was to pray and to submit it to God. Sounds pious, doesn't it? We'll pray and submit it to God. And that, after submitting it to God, that about which the Lord gave him peace, that was what he ought to believe and do. There are three fundamental errors 
there's probably more, but there's three that I'm going to talk about with this scheme of truth determination. The first one is just like the problem we hit with conscience. It is to subject the word of the Spirit what we might call objective revelation. It's outside of us. It's there. It's, 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 it's written. It's, it has nothing to do... You didn't write it. It had nothing to do with you. It was written. Here it is. It's outside of you. It's objective. It's not, it's not influenced by your situation or your question. It's there. It's subjecting the Word of the Spirit to the so-called inner work of the Spirit. In other words, to put feeling over the Word, to put what you ascribe to the Spirit of God over what we know is the Spirit of God. Now, here's something interesting. Prophecy is a verbal revelation, always has been. It's the very nature of it. But did you know that in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the revelation of the prophets always had to be subjected to the already revealed word. First John 4 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. First Thessalonians 5.19 says, Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophesying, but test all things and hold fast to that which is good. Well, how do you test it? Well, Isaiah 8.20, To the law... Speaking of men who claim divine inspiration, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. There is no, not a little bit, not a little bit, but it's somewhat obscured, but we can get something good out of it. There is no light in them. So any professed prophetic revelation, anytime anybody said, I have a word from the Lord, it was subjected to the already revealed word of God. Now, now, if prophecy, which was a verbal revelation claiming to come from the Spirit of God, if prophecy had to be subjected to the Scripture, how much more so ought your inward feelings, which you are claiming to come from the Spirit, have to be subjected to the Scripture. Things that are a way of communicating which as yet we have not found any evidence that the Spirit uses. How much more so? But instead, instead men subject the Word to the, the objective revelation of the Spirit of God to what they claim the Spirit is doing inside of them. That is a fundamental error. Because, it leads us to fundamental error number two, it makes the truth dependent on you. When in point of fact, the truth is completely independent of you. It is independent of what you feel like. It is independent of what you think. Truth is true whether you like it or not. Truth is true whether you feel good about it or not. Truth is true whether it satisfies your standards and meets your requirements or not. Truth is in fact true whether you believe it or not. The truth is totally independent. I mean, while we were yet sinners, ignorant, darkened in our minds, without understanding, hating God, not knowing Him, the truth was already there, completely, without anything to be added to it. And you didn't know it, you didn't like it, you didn't believe in it, you didn't think it was a good thing, you thought it was a bad thing, you thought it was stupid, whatever you thought about it. Why suddenly, now, because you are a Christian, do you think that the truth has become dependent on you? It isn't dependent on you now any more than it was before. Because you are not the Spirit of God, and neither am I. Truth is independent of us in what we feel. And really, this leads into error number three. Really, let me, let me break this down to how this, what this argument really is. The argument is really this. If what 
this is the person speaking who we've who we've told the truth to. Their argument is really this. If what you are saying to me was true, the spirit would make me feel a certain way about it. That, that's really their, their basic argument. If what you're saying is true, the spirit would make me feel a certain way. Well, the simple answer to this is that there is absolutely no such doctrine in the entire Bible anywhere ever. You and I cannot stipulate the internal operations of the Spirit. We can't tell the Spirit how He has to work. If the Spirit of God has inscripturated, if He has written down in the Bible truth and duty, why is it that we demand that He make us feel a certain way about it, about what He has already said for us to believe or do it? I mean, I mean, how would you deal with this with your children? Your children say, you tell your children what to do. And they didn't do it. And you said, why, why didn't you do what I said? And, and, and you said, well, I, I, didn't, I didn't have the right feeling about it. I wasn't sure that's what, you know, I mean, I mean, but, but I told you to sweep the living room. I mean, what's so complicated about that? Well, I didn't get the right feeling when you told me to sweep the living room, so I wasn't really sure whether I was supposed to sweep the living room or not. You, you, I mean, there would be a spanking is what there would happen. They have a feeling. <laughs> faith, faith, by definition, really, is when we believe the revelation of God, the bare word of God, and when we believe it apart from or even against what seems to be, what appears to be, what is likely based on human analysis or your own feelings. I mean, let's think about this. Abraham. Abraham, God spoke to Abraham, revealed this covenant he was going to make with Abraham. Abraham's like a hundred years old. And he's going to have descendants that are more numerous than the sand of the sea. And the Messiah is going to come from him. And, th and his wife's like 90 or whatever. I mean, these are like elderly people. And in fact, they laughed uh, at this. There is nothing, nothing apart from the revelation of God. No reason for him to believe that other than that God has said it. Or Noah. I mean, if the creation scientists are right, here's a, here's a world in which it has never actually rained, in the sense that we think of rain. And, and, and Noah is living on very solidly dry ground that is not near the ocean even. I mean, we're not talking about a little glacier melt that's going to raise the sea levels. And God tells him to build an ark because he's going to destroy everything that lives on the earth. And then, if I recall correctly, it takes decades that he's building this ark. Longer than I have been alive, Noah is building an ark based on the fact that God told him not only was it going to rain, which he may not even have really understood what that was, but that it was going to flood the entire earth and everything would die. And so if he didn't build the ark, I mean, game's up. There is no reason for him to believe that. Rationally speaking about you know, how he might, especially how he might feel. I mean, how do you think he felt about that? I mean, how would you feel about it if I told you that we were going to have a flood and so you'd better go and spend the next 40 years building an ark? I mean, you'd think I was nuts. But when God tells him faith is believing the revelation of God, the Word of God, apart from what seems like it ought to be, the disciples had this problem through the entire ministry of Jesus. He kept telling them, I am going to Jerusalem, I am going to be crucified, and then I'm going to rise from the dead. And they kept saying, oh, that's not going to happen. We, no, we won't let that happen. I mean, I mean, Peter says, I'll stop, I'll protect you, you know. They didn't get it. 
And then even after he's crucified, they're all sad. You know, they're all, he's told them it was going to happen, and now they're all sad and they don't know what to do. Faith is believing the Word of God. You see, there are always doctrines which we're not going to feel good about. There are always things against which we're going to have objections. Doctrines against which the flesh itself will object. I mean, does anyone really sit around contemplating the idea of people eternally burning in hell and not sense a kind of fleshly wish that that were not true. A kind of almost dissatisfaction with that idea. Double predestination. God's sovereign providence over all things. This is, this is a problem that has been throughout all of time. Consider the Greeks. The Greeks, um, sometimes when we think the idea that, that uh, they preach the gospel and, and spirit, you have to be spiritual to understand the gospel means that they, just like we were talking calculus to kindergartners, but it wasn't like that. The Greeks, when Paul would preach to the Greeks, they understood what he was talking about. They understood exactly. He's making very rational uh, arrangement of arguments. Anyone can understand what he's saying. What they said was that it was foolishness. Because it didn't meet their sense of what God ought to be like. You see, inside of them, they said, well, that can't be right. One man dying for another man's sins. That's, that's messed up. I don't, I don't, we're not going to believe that. The Jews, the Jews, of all people, understood what Jesus was saying about himself. That's why they kept trying to kill him. That's why they eventually did kill him. What was the problem there? They rejected the true Messiah because he failed to perform what they believed was the necessary sign, which was overthrowing the Roman government. They understood what he was saying. They said, well, it just doesn't meet our standards. Sorry, we don't like it. We don't feel good about it. We don't have peace about that, Jesus. We really don't have peace about this idea that you're the Messiah. The same thing, you know, the Greeks, you know, some of them, Paul preached on Mars Hill, some of them laughed. Some of them said, that's interesting, we'll hear you again. Some of them believed. They all understood what he was saying. Some of them just said, we don't have peace about that, Paul. This whole idea of one man dying for the sins of another, it's not right to us. See, true spirituality, because we're talking about the Spirit here, and those who would, those who would exalt the feelings that the Spirit gives them, those who would exalt these other ways of knowing outside the Word, these people would say that they were very spiritual and that people who did not agree with them are not. But true spirituality is not believing in feelings. True spirituality is believing in the Word. It is believing in the Word of God against all evidence even. I'm not going to read this, but I would, I would advise you on the heels of this message, to go home tonight and read Hebrews chapter 11 again, the great chapter on faith. Because the whole point of that chapter is that all of these people, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, all of the, the, the Israelites, all of them believed God when He was telling them things that were absolutely unbelievable. I mean, these people walked up to a river walked up to Goodbye, Egypt, and they walk up to a river, expecting it to part in front of them so that they can go through. And then it parts, and they're going through it. And they're believing that God isn't going to drown them all. And then He does drown those who come after them. Hebrews says that's faith. By faith, they did that. When Moses came to years, he, 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 he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than have all the benefits of, of being in Egypt. Why would he do that? Why would you not stay? It's a good job he had there. It was a nice cushy position. I mean, hey, you could do a lot of things from that position to help out God, you know? No. He chose to suffer affliction with the people of God by faith. Wandered in the wilderness by faith. They never planted a crop. They never had a seed. 
Every day, they just believed that God would feed them, would give them water. Abraham, God's, okay, he's gotten, finally gotten that God's promised him the covenant. Amazing, miraculous thing. He's had this son. Now God says, uh, kill him. <coughs> kill him. I know I said through Isaac would your seed be called, but kill him. What does Abraham do? Heads up there with the knife. Why? Because by faith, by faith, he believed that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. Had Abraham ever seen anybody raised up from the dead? No. Never in his whole life. Not one time had Abraham ever seen anybody raised up from the dead. Had Abraham probably even heard of anybody being raised from the dead? No. But he believed that God could raise him from the dead because that was the promise of God. True spirituality is not believing in feelings, but believing in the Word of God. And I, I tell you that if you look for peace apart from God's Word, you will never find peace at all. You will be double-minded. You will be unstable. You will be blown about by every wind of doctrine. You will be confused. You will be unsure and you will vacillate in every decision that you have to make, especially the important ones. You will be without hope and without security. You will be unable to weather the storms of this world and you will be unable to comfort others in their distress because all you will have is that changing, unpredictable feeling and emotion and subjectivity that you have inside of you instead of the rock solid Word of God revealed by His Spirit. True spirituality is not believing in feelings. It is believing in the Word of God. And to rightly know, to truly know what is right and what is wrong, the Spirit of God has revealed Himself in your stomach? No. In his word. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we have in your word that word which is able to make the man of God complete, thoroughly equipped unto every good work. We have that which is able to prevent us from being blown about by every wind of doctrine. We, we have that word of truth, that, that sword of the Spirit which discerns truth from error, which discerns sin from righteousness, so that we need not be held captive, held captive by our feelings, by our fears, by our changing emotions. We need not be held captive by things the way we were brought up or the country which we come out of or, or any of these things, we have security and truth and understanding and knowledge in Your Word. There we may find who You are and how You would have us to live. There we may find what pleases You. There we find Christ Jesus the salvation for our sins and the word by which we are sanctified, the word by which we are enlightened through your spirit, applying it, applying it to our minds, the word by which we are drawn closer to you in truly a more intimate relationship. We praise you, Lord, and we give thanks to you for this word. We praise you that we have it in our own language. For this is a great privilege. We pray that we have it with such easy access that every one of us in this room has the Word of God, probably more than one copy in our possession. When there are people, even today, in this world who do not have the Word in their own language or for whom it is illegal and dangerous to possess. Well, Lord, truly your Word is dangerous to the kingdom of Satan. For it frees men from the bondage, the bondage of, of their sinful hearts, the bondage of a guilty conscience, the bondage of subjectivity, the bondage of, of, of never knowing what is 
true and what is not, what is right and what is wrong. Freeze us from all of these things that we might serve you and glorify you in our generation, in our age, in our world. We praise you and thank you for the revelation of Christ in your word. In his name and for his sake, we ask it. Amen.